0: by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. And once I have enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I am uh, going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to sh- uh, share, or they ought to be able to of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask now that you would attend the proclamation of your word, that you would strengthen the faith of your people, and where there is no faith, that you would plant that seed of belief through the regenerating power of your spirit, so that it might spring up and that you might call people to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. William Carey, the famous Baptist missionary to India in the 1800s, is credited with the saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Now, I'm not sure uh, what Carey was thinking of exactly when he made that statement, but it certainly does summarize well, I believe, what we see the Apostle Paul writing here at the end of his letter in Romans 15 as he begins to wind it down. Uh, Paul had come, of course, to expect great things from God. He had seen it in his own life, and he had seen it in the life of the church and the many local churches that he planted through the power of God's Spirit. Uh, Paul, with, with faith and trust in the power and the work of God to redeem from the world a people for his name, attempted many a great thing as he journeyed throughout his known world, proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. And yes, indeed, that first century of the church was an exciting time with a rapid expansion of Christ's kingdom. But it makes us ask the question, should we expect the same today? Because our world seems vastly different than when Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church I mean, today it almost feels as if the church is in retreat. In fact, I recently read a book on Christian leadership, which I would not recommend, but I was reading it uh, uh, to interact with it. And um, the author suggested that the church must try new ways of being on mission for Jesus Christ other than the proclamation of the gospel and even downplayed the preaching of the word because it just doesn't work anymore. Now, of course, if Paul were to read that book now, he'd probably say, boy, that's just anathema because the power of the gospel never changes. It's always the same. Christ still redeems people through the ministry of his word. And really, when you think about it, is the world today all that different than it was in the Apostle Paul's day? I mean, not really. Uh, Of course, you know, Technology has progressed and life has improved, and we have access to more knowledge and information than the, the first century world could have ever imagined. But in terms of the challenges that the church faces, things really aren't that much different. I mean, the likelihood of the gospel arriving in the city of Rome and people coming to faith and a church springing up there. Well, it's hard to believe that that would happen. It's about just as much as expected as a church existing in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And yet, the light of the gospel broke through the darkness of sin and corruption into Rome, and God planted the flag of his kingdom there amongst those people. In our text this morning, announces that beautiful reality. What we learn here is this, that God reaches unexpected places with the gospel in order that he might use those places to reach out further with the gospel. You See, while this text is certainly Paul's personal thoughts to the Romans and his plans regarding how he wishes to visit them, Uh, It is very much a missionary text, and that's how we should think about it this morning. God's reaching of the Romans with the gospel means that the world will be reached with the gospel. And so, like Paul, we should make God's mission our mission, till all may hear the good news of Jesus Christ See, the first thing we notice is that Paul was satisfied that the gospel of God had indeed landed in Rome, that God had done a work there. And so when he began his letter to the church in Rome, he laid out his thesis right away. Remember what it was? We find it in Romans 1, 15 and 17. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for it is the right, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, as he moves into these concluding remarks, which he begins here in verse 14 of chapter 15, he says he is satisfied. That that very thing that he spoke of back in Romans 1, the power of God in the gospel has taken place in the city of Rome. He is absolutely convinced that the light of the gospel has penetrated the darkness of sin and corruption that was in the city of Rome. And that's what he means when he says, "I am satisfied. I am persuaded about you, my brothers." And he calls them his brothers, his, his brethren, his brothers and sisters. He's placing them in the family of God. Meaning that he is sure that God has indeed called them out of the kingdom of this world to be part of God's family through Jesus. And so Paul lays out some evidence of this, that God has truly done a great work in Rome. He says, first of all, that the Roman believers are full of goodness. That is to say moral excellence that is seen in kindness and generosity expressed towards others. In other words, it is love for God and love for neighbor. It is God's goodness at work within them. Now we know that Nobody possesses goodness inherently within themselves. Paul showed us that earlier in the book of Romans. He said, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And of course he writes describing the Nature of humanity apart from God's work of grace in their hearts. He's describing this is the state of a person when they are bound in the guilt of their sin. I mean, that's what we mean by the term original sin. It's the, the fountainhead, the source of all of our sins and all the sin that we see in the world. And so, how then did the Romans? become full of goodness well it was through Jesus it was through faith and the gospel because the righteous those made right with God who possess his goodness live by faith the second piece of evidence that Paul points to to show that the power of the gospel was at work in Rome is that the Roman believers were not only full of goodness but they were filled he says with knowledge That is to say, they had a complete knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They knew about Jesus in a personal and powerful way, and they knew Jesus as their ever-living Redeemer. Before God's grace was upon them, of course, their minds were darkened by their own sinful understanding. And while God was clearly knowable in the creation all around them, they buried that knowledge But the light of grace had dawned upon them, and they are now filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they saw him in all of his beauty and holiness and radiant splendor and his mercy. And in seeing him, they believed. Paul offers a third piece of evidence. He says, not only are they filled with goodness and knowledge of the gospel, but they are so filled with it that they are able to teach each other the truth Of that gospel he says they are able to instruct one another in the knowledge that they possess they could admonish they could exhort they could encourage one another in truth and in doing that they're able to build one another up in their faith and so yes the gospel had shown up in Rome which really is quite remarkable when you think about what Rome was in paul's day i mean it is the least likely place that you would expect a church to be you look in the new testament and how do you see churches normally started well normally it was through the preaching of one of the apostles Typically, in the Gentile cities, it was was Paul going in, proclaiming the gospel. God would work in people's hearts. They'd come to faith. He would build them up, uh, appoint elders. They would have a church there. Sometimes he would return to that church to strengthen them even further. That's how churches normally started in, in, in the early church in the New Testaments. But Paul had never been to Rome. He did not plant the church there. And nor did any of the other apostles. Not only that, consider the kind of city that Rome was. It was the heart of the Roman Empire, of course, the seat of the emperor, a cosmopolitan capital of the known world, full of beauty and architecture and knowledge. Rome boasted of things like a sewer system and water flowing through great aqueducts. But Rome was a spiritually dark place. Many a shrine and temple was constructed to pagan deities. Idols could be found all over the place. Rome was a a city that personified the spiritual corruption we see described in Romans chapter 1. But God had shown up. The gospel had made an inroad. A church had been started by some unnamed disciple of Jesus Christ. And not only that, it was flourishing. Yes, the gospel shows up in unexpected places, in the least likely cities and parts of the world where we would expect to find a church. God in his sovereign power moves to put one there. Now think about this as amazing as what happened in Rome during Paul's day was. It was no isolated incident. And you here today, worshiping Christ, are proof of that. Ann Arbor is not unlike first century Rome. Ann Arbor, of course, is an academic center, a place of learning and knowledge. And Ann Arbor, like Rome, boasts impressive architecture. At least, that's rather subjective, but I think it does. Buildings like the Michigan Law Building, which looks like Hogwarts, so it's cool. And uh, the uh, Burton Memorial Tower, beautiful structures. But Ann Arbor, just like Rome, is a pagan city. No, we don't have temples to Vesta or Saturn or the Pantheon, uh, but people do worship idols because worshiping of idols isn't necessarily bowing down to stone and wood. Our modern pagan religion has made gods of ourselves, our feelings, our thoughts, what we want to identify as. These are the idols of the people of this world In our modern time but despite the spiritual darkness here we are a church celebrating the grace of the gospel a church that is full of goodness the goodness of God at work within it a church filled with all knowledge of Jesus Christ a church that is able to instruct and admonish one another in the truth of the gospel of our Lord yes what happened in Rome during Paul's day, was no anomaly, because that's how God works, and we see that here in our own lives. In fact, what happened in Rome, Paul shows us secondly in this text, is what God had been doing through Paul's ministry all along. What happened in Rome is what God had been doing through Paul, That's the second thing we should notice. In verses 15 through verse 21, Paul spells out for the Roman church his personal calling and ministry. And what we learn is, is that Paul's mission was God's mission. So he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by the way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus, The Gentiles in the priestly service of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So, Paul here is explaining the reason he has written this letter, and particularly the way he has written this letter, and that he has made some very bold points regarding sin and Christ and God's sovereign grace and his purposes amongst the Gentiles and the Jews. And the reason he wrote all of this, Paul says, was to remind the Romans of what they already knew, to put them in reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to see and consider yet again that their existence uh, was that of being God's people, and they were there in the city of Rome by no accident, but according to the definite and purpose plan of God's redemption. So Paul identifies himself here as a minister of Christ Jesus. He's using a term that is most often used to describe a service of worship. And that's how he's describing his ministry. In fact, he further amplifies it by uh, describing his ministry of proclaiming the gospel to the nations as being a priestly service to God. Paul's Tying gospel ministry in the new covenant to the ministry of the Levitical priests in the old covenant. And what was a priest? Well, he was a mediator between God and his people. And through leading the people in temple worship, through the sacrifices, uh, the priests would bring God's people into God's presence so that they might know him and enjoy him and worship him. And that's what gospel ministry does. Through word and sacrament, it brings God's people into that restored relationship they have with God so that they might enjoy their Creator and His blessings forever, and in enjoying those blessings, might worship Him. I mean, the purpose of sacrifice ultimately is to worship God. It was to acknowledge him, to remind the people of what God had done, his mighty works to deliver them and their bring them into his presence. So Paul, through gospel ministry, was leading people to worship God. But what was the sacrifice that he was offering up? He says here that it was the very people to whom he ministered, specifically the Gentile nations of the world. He brought the Gentiles through the preaching of the gospel as an offering that was holy and acceptable and sanctified to God by the Holy Spirit. And sanctification, of course, speaks of being dedicated or consecrated to God. So he's saying this great gathering of the redeemed that now exists through the ministry that I did They are a sacrifice to God. They declare God's might, his power, that his kingdom is growing, that he is doing great works. These people, the church, is the instrument of God's praise and worship. And that means that you, if you are united to Jesus Christ through faith, you too are like a sacrifice that is going up to the Lord. To the praise of his glorious grace. And that is true of the Roman believers as well. That's why Paul wrote to them to remind them of these things, that they were part of this great new exodus of God calling out his people. We see this in verses 17 through 21. Paul says that in Christ Jesus, he is proud of his work for God. That is to say, he boasts in Jesus and only in Jesus. There's this exuberant joy, this celebration of what God has done through Jesus the Son, for it is Jesus who has fulfilled God's plans and purposes in saving the Gentiles and making them God's people. And so Paul ties that work of God in Christ to the historical exodus event, and he does that by describing the obedience of the Gentiles, that means their obedience of faith, their trusting in Jesus, he describes that as being like the exodus because they came to that obedience of faith, he says, by word or deed or by signs and wonders would be another way you could speak of it. This terminology, word and deed, is used throughout the scriptures to describe God's saving work of his people, freeing them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, to lead them into the land of promise. And he says that same power of God, that power that made Israel a nation, that power is what is leading the Gentile nations out of the darkness of sin, the kingdom of Satan, and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's a new exodus. And so Paul describes then his ministry from Jerusalem all the way, he says, to Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania, if you are wondering. Uh, he says that it is one that brings the Gentiles by God's powerful word and deed to the obedience of faith. And so he makes it his ambition then to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named or confessed but in the unknown places, the unexpected places so that the work of God would continue. And he cites from Isaiah 52 to support his ministry that he has been about All these years, he says, as it is written, those who have never been told will see him and those who will have never heard will understand. So he's saying, it has been my practice as the apostle to the Gentiles to go to the places where Christ has not been uh, named. He directed all of his effort, all of his energy into the establishment and the edifying of churches that he himself had begun. And it is for that reason, he says in verse 22, because I've been busy with that work, I've never come to Rome. There was already a church there. God had already done something. I have never been there because I didn't need to. But now he says, things have changed. Well, what's changed? Why is Paul willing to change the way he's done his ministry in order to go to Rome? And it is this. He had completed his work. Obviously, in this region, he names as Jerusalem to Illyricum, and he desires to go to Rome so that from Rome, the gospel would reach the world. Or to put it another way, the reason God shows his gospel in unexpected places is so that those unexpected places would reach more of the world. In verses 22 through 33, Paul lays out his strategy for going further than he had ever gone before, reaching more people than he had ever reached before with the truth of Jesus Christ. He says, but now... Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul was wanting to go to Rome now because he had finished his ministry in the regions from Jerusalem to Illyricum, and he now is casting his eyes on distant horizons. He wants Rome to be that platform for further expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so he says, first I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to pass by you. And from Rome he will go on to Spain, and from Spain to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see here, of course, that Paul's planned ministry when he comes to Rome will be different than his ministry in other cities. Here, he says the first thing he wants to do is to enjoy the Romans' company for a while. He wants their fellowship, he wants to be refreshed and encouraged by them spiritually to be strengthened for further ministry as he would go on to Spain. Secondly, he says, Romans, I need your supports. He wanted the Roman church to help him through prayer and resources to reach further with the gospel than he had ever done before. And he wanted Rome to be like Antioch was, which had first ordained him to go forth and establish churches through the preaching of the gospel. In all likelihood, what Paul is hoping for is a team that would go with him from Rome, of mature Roman believers who would go out journeying with him proclaim the gospel, just as Antioch had done years before. And Rome, as the center of the rest in the world, would become this great missionary hub from which the gospel would flow in all directions, filling the earth with the people of God and thus fulfilling God's covenant promises to have a people for his name. Yes, from Rome, the kingdom would spread Christ would have the inheritance he had won. And as an example of the kind of support he would need, Paul relates a real-life example of Gentile Christians showing that kind of love and support for their poor Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. And so he says here, before he comes to Rome, in, in, in verse 25, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. See, around this time when... Paul had written this, there had been uh, uh, a famine in the area of Jerusalem. And so what he is doing then is carrying an offering from Gentile churches to their Jewish brethren. And there's a lot we can take from these verses. But one thing is very important that we should zero in on. And that this act of offering, of love and support, shows the unity that exists in Christ. Because here you have Macedonians, Gentiles, supporting their Jewish brothers brothers and sisters. And Paul will bring this offering to them. And that is to show an example to the Romans. Just as the Macedonians showed love and glorified God, Paul would need that kind of support to go forth into Spain and beyond. But he desires more than just financial support. Paul says that he needs prayer support as well. And so as he wraps up his letter, he appeals for prayer. He says, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive to wrestle together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So he prays in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he appeals for prayer for three things. First, that the gospel not be restrained. If the unbelievers in Jerusalem were to somehow silence Paul, it would be an attempt to silence the very voice of Christ. And he wishes the gospel to be proclaimed. Secondly, he says, pray for the unity of the church. Pray that the Jewish church accepts the Gentile offering so that our unity of faith is shown forth. And third, he says, pray for the fulfillment of God's mission as demonstrated through Paul's coming to Rome so that they might be a launching place for further expansion of Christ's kingdom. So you put that all together and what Paul is asking the Roman church to pray for is that the gospel would continue to show up in unexpected places because that's what god does through his church he builds his kingdom in places where you would least expect it and so yes like william Carey said we should expect great things from god even in our generation and just as paul did we should attempt great things for god well, what's the takeaway I mean, what kind of great things are we talking about? What kind of great things can we at Christ Church Ann Arbor do for the kingdom of Christ? We do seem limited in different ways. I mean, are we all supposed to just stop whatever we're doing and like Paul journey to some distant land to bring the kingdom of Christ? No, that is not necessarily what we are called to do. Some of us might be, but not all of us. You see, great things for God don't mean mean that they have to be extravagant things. Great things for God are often the little things, the simple things, the ordinary things that we do every day in the life of the church. What Paul was asking from the Roman church wasn't some great dramatic effort. He wasn't asking the entire church to go with him. He was simply saying, pray for me give, support me, send me simple things. The great things we do for Jesus are simple like that. We can all pray. We can all support in some way. We can all send forth others like Paul if God would call them from our midst. And we can all show love towards one another as the Macedonian believers did for their Jerusalem brethren. We can all make a meal for someone if they are struggling or invite them into our home for hospitality, for fellowship, to encourage them. We can partner together to pray regularly throughout the week. We can offer a ride to others like students who might want to come and worship with us on the Lord's Day. We can do little, simple, ordinary things, and those are great things for God. If you are parents teaching your kids the truth of God's word, Grounding them in the faith of the scriptures, helping them to learn our catechism so that they understand who God is and what He has done, bringing them to worship. Those little things are great things you do for God. And the Lord uses them to make His gospel show up in unexpected places. I mean, who's to say? that your son or your daughter isn't the next missionary to China or North Korea or Saudi Arabia. God can use them. And who's to say that many of the children that we hear, even the youngest of us, that don't want to go to the nursery and like to scream, who's to say that God is not raising up in them future leaders and pastors and elders and deacons to proclaim the good news of Christ. You see, Ann Arbor is a lot like Rome. We are a kingdom hub. We can spread the glory of God because we know that God will do great things. And he will do it through those ordinary, simple things that we do for him. Because the gospel has shown up in an unexpected place. So that the gospel might continue to go out into all the earth. See, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. And his kingdom will stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. God is building his kingdom and he's doing it through us. And so let's continue to be faithful through those little things knowing that God uses them to do great things for his name. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how it works in ways that we don't even understand or expect. We rejoice that you have called us here and put us here for such a time as, us, as this. So I pray, Father, that you would encourage your people, that you would build them up, that you would uh, continue to empower them through your spirit to be about the work of your kingdom in their families, in their lives, in their jobs, in their careers, their studies, wherever you have them, that you would encourage them to attempt these great things, which are really simple things for you, knowing that you are at work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and give praise to God through this hymn, Be Thou My Vision, acknowledging that Christ is our King, that He has won a great victory, and we walk with Him in that victory.
1: Thou mine Inheritance now
0: having our high king in heaven is that